You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hi, I'm Perry Carpenter, and you're listening to Eighth Layer Insights. In the field of cybersecurity, we talk a lot about the need to be ready for attacks. We talk about prediction, prevention, detection, response, and recovery. But how do we do that? How do we predict what is going to go wrong? How do we understand the different attack vectors that somebody with ill intent may take against us? One of the ways to do that is through penetration testing, through red teaming, working with people or organizations that will take on the mantle of pretending to be an adversary with the intent of exposing our flaws so that we can then proactively patch them and save ourselves from having a bad day. Today's guest is Chad Peterson. Chad is a managing director at NetSpy, a cybersecurity vendor who specializes in penetration testing as a service, helping organizations understand their attack surface, creating breach and attack simulations, and really helping organizations drill down into understanding how attackers might view them and what openings attackers may have. Again, this is all with the end goal of understanding the attacker's mindset, their ability to get into your organization so that you may then close those doors. This interview with Chad is wide ranging. We talk about the importance of penetration testing, the concept of red teaming, why it's important to do this, how to approach our boards of directors about these kinds of topics, and how to think about social engineering, where ransomware comes in, the complex decisions around whether or not to pay a ransom, how to best prepare yourself for the worst day that you may ever have as a cybersecurity professional and as a business that just wants to do business. And so if that sounds interesting to you, stay tuned, because on today's show, attack and penetration testing, red teaming, social engineering, ransomware, and more. Welcome to Eighth Layer Insights. This podcast is a multidisciplinary exploration into the complexities of human nature and how those complexities impact everything from why we think the things that we think to why we do the things that we do and how we can all make better decisions every day. This is Eighth Layer Insights, Season 4, Episode 4. I'm Perry Carpenter. We'll be right back after this message. So, what's a con game? It's a fraud that works by getting the victim to misplace their confidence in the con artist. In the world of security, we call confidence tricks social engineering. And as our sponsors at Know Before can tell you, human error is how most organizations get compromised. What are some of the ways organizations are victimized by social engineering? We'll find out later in the show. Welcome back. 
Let's get straight into our interview with Chad Peterson, where we're going to talk about red teaming, penetration testing, security awareness, ransomware, talking to our boards of directors, and a whole bunch of other fun stuff. So I hope you enjoy this interview. Let's go. I'm Chad Peterson. I'm a managing director at NetSpy. We are an offensive security organization, been around for the greater part of 20 years, really specialized not only in your traditional pen testing, but uh, also going a little bit further uh, from your traditional external all the way down to, uh, you know, in the healthcare area, even medical devices. So it's that entire ecosystem from the external all the way down to the the chipset. That's great. So for folks that um, are hesitant to do pen testing, what would you say is the best reason to do it as opposed to just kind of be afraid of something like bringing in a pen testing organization? It's really to get the idea and the understanding of where you sit from a security point of view. And I like to say that uh, the pen testing is really nothing that's not being done to your environment every day by the bad guys. It's nice to actually get a report about it and see what's going on, what's identifiable, and allow you the opportunity to address some of those risks and put in compensated controls to prevent those those potential uh, exploits to the vulnerabilities. So then what's a standard engagement look like? Standard engagement for an external, we'll just stick with that one. It's, yeah. it's, it's identifying you know the external attack surface. So doing a discovery of your environment of what's on the outside. Uh, once we identify the the IPs or the domains, um, it's it's doing some some manual uh, and well, we we really specialize a lot in manual testing, but it all starts with a lot of the tools out there. So you know whether it's uh, the commercial scan tools or some of the proprietary scan tools that we've created, it's really just to create that um, treasure map, if you will, to know what your environment looks like an idea of the services are running, protocols are running, just an understanding. And then from there, we can look for any potential known vulnerabilities, uh, you know, like missing patches, yeah. uh, open ports that shouldn't be there. Um, and then from the pen test point of view is, and this is the key and what makes it different than just a vulnerability scan. It's, all right, do those potential vulnerabilities actually pose a threat to your organization. Mm. So we try to exploit those vulnerabilities to see if you can actually gain access. Now, unlike a hacker, we can do that in a more friendly way that once we do get in or, or start to move around laterally in your environment, we are not collecting data or, or bringing systems down on those, those pieces, but we at least can identify those pathways into your environment, let you know, and, and provide you steps on actual remediation. From your experience then, what are the paths into an environment that you can almost always count on being there? Like, like if you're, if there were a top three, what would the top three be? It's, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of them are quite frankly, uh, systems that are out of date, not patched. Um, it's, uh, some exploitation in older code that gets reused and has some exploits, uh, essentially hard coded in what they're doing. So mm -hmm. they keep reusing over and over and, and the exploit doesn't go away. And, you know, the other is, is quite frankly, it's, it's, um, 
organizations who have set up external access and haven't taken the precautions to minimize that access, whether that's through things like multi-factor authentication to ensure that you are who you are um, and ensuring that the accounts that can be accessed from the outside don't have elevated privileges. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it's really unpatched systems, elevated privilege, um, and, and inherent flaws that just, you know, keep repeating like often seen in code. Yeah. Then where does uh, social engineering fit in with all this? Social engineering is, is a great way to hit into, I think that topic of, of, you know, what makes the human nature such a, a big part of the security world. And that is people generally want to help. People mm. are generally curious. So you get some social engineering, whether it's physical social engineering of letting someone into the building, able to free them around and even helping them out to find the direction of where they're going to um, sending the emails with the links, some information, something that looks too good to be true and people click. Um, we are a, a curious nature. And, you know, I always use that analogy. You know, you continually walk down a hallway and you're past a door eventually you're going to try to open that door to see what's on the other side. If you're not supposed to be in there, we hope the door is locked or, mm -hmm. or monitored, but eventually you are going to do it. We're, we're a curious nature. Yeah. So have there been any specific trends that you've seen over the past uh, you know, time that you've been doing this, or have you seen any specific changes maybe since the pandemic? What, what is the ecosystem of social engineering look like? Yeah, Perry, a lot of it, it, it it's interesting. And I always use that, the, the phrase of what's old is new again. And mm, it's always okay. cyclical. I mean, and we are, we're still seeing the phishing attempts um, of, you know, the, the email sent out offering something that, that looks great. They want you to click on a link. That link actually uh, initiates some malicious code or something else into the environment. People do that. Um, that hasn't gone away. Um, we may have seen actually an increase of that when you look at uh, the remote workforce and as we're working from home, we are uh, right, wrong, or indifferent. When we're working in our home office, we're a little bit more at ease as if we're actually in the corporate building and sitting at your desk, everything is work. Right. Um, you get home and, and I think your, your defenses come down a little bit, which makes us a little bit more susceptible. Yeah. Um, from a, a pen testing standpoint, are there any specific uh, ways that you approach the social engineering piece of an engagement? We actually can use and often do use the social environments to go beyond a pen test when we actually refer to maybe as a red team engagement. So you take those vulnerabilities and then how to get that inside. So we will actually create and use different phishing emails, um, different scenarios to get uh, organizations or people within the organizations to give us more info, uh, to log in, get us credentials. And, and we can do that by, you know, things as simple as, as looking at uh, an organization, um, seeing the people who are employed at that organization through something like LinkedIn, go through, understand a little bit more about them and start to tailor messages specific to an individual based on their role, some things that they've posted, um, you know, even from a, make it more personal, make it like, yeah, I do know you because I also looked at your Facebook account and know what you do a little bit in your, uh, in your personal life. So to make those more tailored and, and, and friendly, they're more often to be clicked. So uh, absolutely, we look at all that information. And uh, 
uh, you know, take advantage of, of the, uh, the human side of the environment. Yeah. So either from your past before you joined NetSpy or, or in your current role, are there any great stories that are either just fun to share because they demonstrate some aspect of human nature or some way that you can better approach security or that are good cautionary tales? Yeah. I, you know, a lot of them come from a lot of those social engineering engagements and it's, it's going through and, you know, anything from a physical point of view of, uh, you know, one of the things personally I'd love to do when I was doing from the consultant side, the uh, physical uh, portion of a pen test is nothing was better than to call your point of contact from their server room mm. and uh, was successful to do that several times that, uh, you know, I, I used to joke that uh, it, it's changed a little bit and this is going to going to date when I was doing this activity, <laughs> but uh, the, uh, the, the two, the two jobs you could always go to the front door on and you were the copy repairman or you were there for coffee delivery. Two mm. people that are always led into a building because there's always an issue. So it's very easy to you know, get the shirt with your name on it, the name of the organization. You get right in. And they, uh, uh, the nice thing about the copy is they, they usually send you right there and put you right in front of the, uh, the, the copy machine that's usually the, the, the problem child of the group. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are often, as you know, associated to the network. So they leave you alone. And now I have an open jack to... Uh, plug into and do what I need to do. <laughs> this is interesting because I've seen a, a few different uh, pen testers and it's always interesting to see the lapse of time between when they enter a building and when they are, when they've compromised a system. It's usually shockingly quick. Yes. Um, do you, do you <laughs> well, measure... the quicker, the better. The longer, yeah. the longer you sit around, the better chance you have getting caught. <laughs> yeah. So, so what does that generally look like? As soon as you've gotten into a, a building, what's the next step? Next step is, is to either, depending on, on, on the, the story that you use to get in, um, mm -hmm. it's something, you know, like, like the copy it's, it's getting there and then, you know, Getting, getting uh, either that open network jack and, and putting up some type of sniffer on there or finding uh, an empty conference room or, you know, even uh, an open workstation that you can uh, go through. Uh, another great thing is, uh, you know, we've, we've done the lot easier then than it is now, but, uh, you know, something as simple as, as we have some documentation I need to get printed out. I didn't have a chance to do it beforehand and you have it yeah. on a USB stick. Things like that can go go pretty quick, but the whole idea there is to get in, blend in, not stand out, uh, and find a way to 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 access that environment either through a physical connection. Um, a little harder traditionally over a wireless, but still possible. Over the past decade or so, how much harder has it gotten? Because I, you know, I remember when I first started looking at this, you could do uh, some basic network sniffing and you could see passwords in clear text you could uh, run a wi-fi pineapple and you know, the stuff that that you could see there was always pretty shocking um, how much has that changed over the past decade have we gotten any better or do you still find major major problems as soon as you're able to have that kind of view yes and yes uh, <laughs> okay. Predominantly, we, we have gotten better, but at the same time period, you where technology has gotten better. So some of mm -hmm. our tools are a little bit better to find some of that information, uh, whether it's you know, the use of a flipper or some other components, other tools. But uh, no, I mean, you know, it's, it's, we've done a 
good job traditionally of, of hardening the, the external shell, if you will, of our environments. Right. But as you know, once you do get inside where a social engineering gig's going to get you in, once you're inside the environment, the security is typically not as tight. Um, so you are seeing more information once you do get that initial entry point into the environment. Yeah. Um, and then is it still I mean, with with as many people having VPNs as they do now and some of the other tightening of, of basic Wi-Fi security? Is it still a scary thing if somebody joins a Wi-Fi network that they're not an owner of? Uh, depends on the architecture and how that is set up. Yeah. I mean, many times when you look at guest Wi-Fi versus corporate Wi-Fi, that guest Wi-Fi doesn't even have access typically to the same environments. There's a gap between the two networks. Um, in order to get into the other side, you have to authenticate and do those, those pieces. Yeah. So as long as the, the identity and access management controls are in place, whether that's username, password, plus a multi-factor, you're in pretty good shape. Um, but we still have to do those basics, and that's not always the case. Um, yeah, there's, there's, you know, I, I, I talk about, you know, we've all heard that story uh, when I talk about security of, you know, the, the two guys in the woods and there's a bear. And, you know, the one guy puts his tennis shoes on and says, you cannot <laughs> run the bear. He says, I don't need to. I just need to outrun you. Right. And it's that same aspect. It's, it's that hackers are, are like water. They're going to follow that path of least resistance. So the harder you make it, there's usually an easier target. Um, the sad and scary part of that is if you do have something that someone really wants, they're eventually going to get it. It may take them longer. It, it may take an engagement where, you know, you may have to have an initial entry point into an environment and you may not get the information you were going after for six, eight, 12, 16, 18 months. But if you have the persistence to stick in there and, and grab the information, eventually you will get it. What do you say maybe to a, a board of directors member when they finally get that realization? Uh, do you do you say give up hope or do you you know what what's the you know what's the next thing? Because that that begs a number of questions when you're like, regardless of almost who you are, if you have an advanced adversary, a persistent adversary they will get something. So where does hope come from and how do you build resilience in that kind of ecosystem? Hope comes in. It, it's there, there are still additional controls you can put in. So, you know, the, the easiest thing is to protect that individual piece of data alone. So hmm. with the use of encryption at rest. So if it, even if it does get to the outside, it's not usable. Um, but the best thing you can do is train your teams on how to identify characteristics of an attack. Um, the whole idea of uh, having your, your incident response or your, your red team type activity, purple team, blue team, as that's that whole conjunction of uh, the adversary versus your internal team and how they work together in these exercises is to practice this whole process of how to see activity that's not normal in your environment earlier than later. And, yeah. and they refer to that as the kill chain. The earlier in the kill chain, you can see something coming into your environment before it gets to a target, the better off you are. And that's done through multiple steps, different areas of control, different roadblocks, toll gates to mm -hmm. 
really see that activity and stop it before it gets too far. Okay, great. So um, let's take a, a turn specifically in, in some of the environments that you're interested in, which is healthcare. What what are some basic observations that you have about what it's like to to, to red team healthcare environments? Where are the major <laughs> concerns? Where are the major vulnerabilities? And what's some advice to tighten right. that up? Well, healthcare is an interesting one, mainly when you look at uh, what's happening and and the type of data that we deal with. The interesting thing about healthcare is your electronic health record is not only information that's that's great to steal identities because it has everything about you, your you know all of your pertinent information about you personally, where you live, all your social security number information, all that. Oftentimes, there's also associated with the payment activity. So that information is there as well. So it's not only protected health information, it's also, uh, you know, monetary information. So oftentimes, you'll find bank account numbers, you'll find credit card numbers, you'll see all that information. Um, Very great if you're looking for selling something on the black market as far as an identity, it's all right there. Um, And as we are transitioning more to the electronic health record, it's out there in, in a form that's easier to grab than it was back in the day when it was in a filing cabinet. Um, so with that and in combination of how traditionally healthcare environments are set up from an architecture, a network point of view, it's a tough one. Um, identity and access management is, is traditionally difficult, um, whether that's by the nature of needing quick access to systems so uh, you know, there's shared passwords. There's those components that run rampant in healthcare environments, whether it's um, devices that don't get patched out of fear of bringing systems down, mm-hmm. whether it's um, inability to patch because of mandates from a vendor. It's surprising how often you'll hear that you know, we, can't, we can't scan that machine or a penetration test, or or even just a vulnerability scan, because it's not that stable because it hasn't been patched in two years. Well, why hasn't it been patched? <laughs> well, because it'll it'll void the warranty that the vendor has on the applications that we're running on that we're not able to do that. Mm. Very alarming. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, you'll also see legacy systems. I mean, they'll have uh, a. You know, inventory systems for medical supplies that could run on a device. Uh, you know, a Windows XP workstations are still rampant in healthcare um, that aren't even in support by the vendor anymore. So those things come different. A lot of the legacy devices, which add to the complexity. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, you know, we talked about they're they're open environments. They're really designed for ease of use to ensure that uh, the care is available. For the patient, we're not creating any roadblocks. It's an easy system, um, so that that adds to the complexity. Um, a lot of systems, a lot of people moving around, a lot of chaos. So systems are left open. Um, that's another area that can really get into. A lot of these are. It, it's sounding scary, and and it just makes it a larger challenge. But don't lose hope. There's still a lot we can do with just the basic fundamentals of understanding. Uh, what the where the environment or you know what the environment looks like, where the data resides, and how to protect that data, and, and whether it's through encryption, whether it's through segmented environments, um, and everything 
you can do from that basic blocking and tackling. Um, the other thing that's difficult in healthcare is, you know, identity management. Mm-hmm. Um, you really have to follow that 80-20 rule. You're not going to, um, you know, create roles for everyone in the environment because unfortunately a nurse is not a nurse is not a nurse. Uh, they may be working in one area today in another department tomorrow, even another location the next day. Yeah. So it, it, that makes it more complex. So it, it is the ability to, to be able to monitor and ensure that they are at least using their own identity, logging in so you can see that information. And the education, working with uh, those for proper use of equipment, logging in, logging off when possible, not leaving workstations unattended. Uh, it, it, it's a lot of the quote-unquote basic blocking and tackling. Yeah. But as we know, some of the easiest fixes are, are the ones that are, are often missed. Okay. Um, because it's just, you know, the traditional, we, we start, you know, life gets in the way. We, we yeah. start to work. <laughs> so when I think about healthcare, that's one word that is like an umbrella term for lots of different environments that have different systems in it. So there's the hospital environment, which it sounds like we were talking about primarily there. Yes. There's also... Um, University-based uh, healthcare, which is still similar to hospital, but a little bit more research-intensive. There's the payer systems, uh, which are not doing care, but are are managing insurance payments and a lot of uh, records as well. Um, do you see any from from a pen testing perspective? Do you approach those things, those uh, areas differently, or are they pretty much the same plan from the outside? Um, it's the same basic blocking and tackling as far as how you're approaching, you know, you're looking for the vulnerabilities you're seeing, all right, are these vulnerabilities exploitable? Right. Now where the differences come in, are there are nuances exactly like you talked about with the hospital systems, just because there are more, um, you know, there, there, there's a more openness. Same thing mm-hmm. when you talk about a university health system, uh, because not only do you get the, uh, uh, the, the general, openness of a hospital, but then you add the, uh, you know, different regulations like FERPA and things need to be open and, and, and what you'd need to do in a university environment. So that's always interesting. Um, biggest thing you need to look at, at, at all these two is, is, you know, there's, there's funding and, and security is not why they are in business. You know, they are not in the security right. business. They are in the healthcare business. So there's, it's, it's not top of mind. It's, it's, you know, yeah. it's not bringing in what needs to be done. It's, you know, it's not bringing in patients. It's not bringing in healthcare. It's not that focus. I do see a bit of a difference when you start talking about the payer type environment, the insurance type of environment mm-hmm. still apply to HIPAA regulations and what needs to be done to protect the data. But just by the nature of how they do their business, they are usually more secure just because they can be set up like a traditional network. Right. They are run like a traditional network. They don't have MRI machines in their break rooms or anything like that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The conclusion of our interview with Chad Peterson after the break. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. And now we return to our sponsor's question about forms of social engineering. Know Before will tell you that where there's human contact, there can be con games. 
It's important to build the kind of security culture in which your employees are enabled to make smart security decisions. To do that, they need new school security awareness training. See how your security culture stacks up against Nobefore's free phishing test. Get it at nobefore.com slash phishing test. That's nobefore.com slash phishing test. Welcome back. So you've touched on identity and access management a few times, and you also mentioned the fact that things need to be open and fast in hospital environments, which argues against multi-factor authentication, at least as far as like using an authenticator app or something else that's going to slow down the process. Um, How do we deal with that in those systems? You know, I've got an indication because I actually used to specialize in IAM back when I was at Gartner, but from, uh, you know, I've not looked at it deeply in the past seven, eight years. Mm-hmm. It's it's still. I mean, you you have uh, in, instead of using the, the the phone tokens, if you will, of, of you know the the different secure ID, those pieces that come back, um, you still have things that can be used a lot easier. Whether it's uh, proximity badges that are either tapped or even sensors if you're nearby. Right. Um, so there are other components now. Some of those bring up their own nuances. Uh, you know, the the non-tap prox badges were always interesting. When uh, I don't know if you've ever watched a, a group of individuals in a hospital yeah. working, um, there's usually more than one right there. Yeah. So there's some difficulty there with the with the non-tap proxes. But uh, the other ones, it's it's that that does help. Biometrics work great in theory. A um, little tough to get fingerprints when you're wearing latex gloves and some of those other components. So there are some nuances. It depends on the department where you are and what works. But identity, it, it, it's just a different form of identity management and what you can do for multi-factor uh, yeah. in those situations. Is there a, a minimum standard right now that you're seeing across it? everybody or or is it still a little bit of a wild west in terms of like what's happening out um, throughout maybe the u.s or the world well i I think you're you know the the regs have been there and 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 what needs Mm -hmm. to be done to protect the identities i think the the benefit that we have is 10 years ago multi-factor was still this this pain point that people felt because i had to do another thing Today, multi-factor is everywhere. Uh, it's become right. a part of our regular life, whether it's logging into your bank, whether it's, I mean, heck, it's even you know available on, on your Facebook and some of these other components. So multi-factor, is it, it's almost an expectation today versus where it was the exception 10 years ago. So just the way people are now working and seeing those pieces, it's no longer a hindrance. It's just a part of doing it that's helped a ton. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, people are becoming a bit more, uh, aware just of, of what it means to protect information. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, if you're putting in a system, you know, it, and there's a reason why I'm collecting this information, anyone who's had their, their, their credit card stolen or impersonated or any of that has felt that pain and, and they kind of get that, that, that appreciation of why we're doing what we're doing. So there are more and more personal affected stories going on that do help that process. So um, 
Where does training come in with all of this? Uh, I, I guess that's a multifaceted question too, because there's training for the different teams that are that are involved that are um, doing patching and updating and understanding the issues there for, as far as the most frequent ways that attackers get in. But there's, there's also training for the general end user population. Can you talk a little bit about where you've seen that work and not work? What are the benefits and limitations from your perspective? Sure, and and you're right on both sides. It, it's you know, whether it's tabletops for your technical team of, of practicing how to identify and stop attacks uh, versus, um, you know, basic security awareness programs that need to be done for the employees of your organization. So um, organizations in general are pretty good when it comes to doing some initial onboard training in their onboarding program. Uh, when an employee starts at an organization, it's just part of that that whole process. Before you can work, you need to go through all of this. Mm-hmm. The difficult thing there is the continuation training and and going through. So a, a security awareness program is just that. It's a program. It's not a, hey, here's a booklet that you get during orientation to read through it. These are our policies and procedures. Have fun. Good luck. It's you need to do other things throughout, and whether that's security awareness month that we have throughout many organizations participate, and it's just raising that awareness, something as simple as, as posters uh, that, that help in the break room, but it's, it's other things as far as doing some phishing campaigns and, and pieces like that, you know, things that you are working uh, to, to I, not to trick your employees or, or, or try to get them to fall for these activities, but to make them aware and continue to remind them. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, I, I laugh about a little bit, but it, it actually shows that it's working is when you look at different phishing attacks is, is when you send out a phishing email that the first time you may do it, you may have 40% of your employees click on it. The second time you send it out, you may only have 10. Mm-hmm. Now, on surface, that looks great. You know, I, hey, I've improved it by, by a multiple factor. But the thing you have to look at, all right, we've raised awareness, which is the big thing and why we are doing it. Secondarily, though, it could be that maybe the email wasn't crafted the same way and it was a little bit more obvious that it yeah. was fake than the first one. So that's where you had to be a little bit careful. Um but it's 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 the repetition, yeah. keeping things in front of mind, and don't send out the exact same fish multiple times. <laughs> exactly. At that point, you're, exactly. Yeah, you're not acting like an attacker. You're... Right, and and it's on top of that too, Perry. It's not only the same one every time. It's it's you have to be careful on the numbers that you send out. Mm. Uh, it's a little easier now, maybe since we're all remote for the most part, but if you're together and, and four or five people get the same email who work within 30 feet of each other, uh, yeah, the success rate for that's going to go down. Yeah. Randomize um, your times, randomize your templates. Right. Not everybody gets the yep. same thing and not everybody gets stuff at the same time. Yeah. Right. And, and, and speaking about the same thing too, is, is the other thing to look at is, is when you have a security program, it's, um, making the program tailored to the individual's mm-hmm. role. And what I mean by that is your standard employee is going to get your standard. Everyone's going to get this foundational piece of training. But you know your system admins may need a little bit higher training, a little bit more of how to protect data. 
those that are dealing in the healthcare environment, specifically with PHI, you want to talk a little bit more about the specific HIPAA regulations and why it needs to be protected and how. So you want your training to fit the skill level and the type of information that those users are utilizing. The higher the risk, the more training. So as we get ready to wrap up, are there any last thoughts that you want to leave our audience with or maybe how to approach their board, how to think about the threats, anything else? In, in general, as far as a wrap up of, of what you need to do to and kind of going back to your question of what do you do and how do you talk to a board and about the gloom and doom? Um, there are the basic things you can do. Um, to help protect your environment and making sure you're doing your due diligence. And the first part of that is, is the awareness. So whether that's just understanding and having a way to uh, continually understand your attack surface, knowing what you have on the external face inside of your environment, uh, being able to know when uh, new cloud instances potentially pop up, when new systems are, are, are brought up, new applications are brought into the environment that are internet facing, that you're aware of the, the, the protocols, the ports, the IPs and everything that's there. So know your environment. The only way to protect something you're not aware of is by accident. So you do need to be able to see it. Um, and it's, it's constantly and continual looking at that and looking for changes. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is, is, you know, have a plan. Um, and what I mean by a plan is, is, you know, yes, you can be proactive, you can do the scanning, you can see what's going on, but we also have to plan if a breach happens, if something like ransomware does happen in your environment, you need to be ready. Yeah. Um, and that's everything from uh, a communications plan internally, being able to identify the severity of the incident. And you notice I use the word incident. Because it's an yeah. incident until it's proven to be a breach. So has enough uh, occurred? Did information of a pertinent value get out? And does it need to be addressed? That can determine how you have to communicate back. Uh, and understanding all that and, and having that as a process that you can practice through with, with some tabletop exercises. The other major contingency plan is, uh, you know, can, if systems are down, your organization work? Can it run? You know, in the area of a hospital, can you still do patient intake? Can you still do everything? Can you revert back to paper? Can, can the processes and the why you are in business still take place? And backups. Backups mm. are, are something we've always been doing. But, you know, one of the best defenses for a ransomware attack, quite honestly, is to have a good backup. Uh, you don't have to worry about the ability to pay to get your information back if you have a clean copy in the background. So being ready for the inevitable is is probably one of the biggest things. It's like anything else. Be prepared. Yeah. Be prepared and practice for it. Let me let me throw one other question in there real quick that may or not may not be worth spending a couple minutes on. Um, but since we mentioned ransomware a couple times and we talked about the mm -hmm. board of directors, we talked about preparing beforehand. There is always the question about if the worst happens, do you pay or you don't pay, which is both a practical question and an, and an ethical question, I think. Um, and then governments and everybody else are trying to weigh in on that. With healthcare, um, and you potentially have um, 
you know, loss of life involved and other things like that, uh, I think the water gets a little bit murky, right? Um, so how it do does. you how do you set up an effective policy or framework of thinking about how you deal with that if the worst happens? You know, it 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 goes back to having those those safety nets in place. A being you know the the backups so you can recover quicker. Um, having the ability to when it comes to um, you know loss of life or or human safety, it's um, ensure that things like segmentation happen in your environment so those vulnerable systems are not apart. So your healthcare, your your actual systems within the operating room and those pieces are segmented off from the rest of the network wherever possible. So those aren't going to fall victim to those attacks. Um, but as information is, in, in the case of a ransomware, do you have the ability to recover it? That's really what it boils down to. If you have the ability to recover, whether it's going to take a while through backups, whether you have programs in place to still maintain doing what you need to do is from a business point of view or an operational point of view, it, it's that decision and the, the, the contingencies of whether to pay or not. Because you're right, it's yeah. it's uh, you don't want to reward bad behavior, but at the same point in time, you do need to do what you have to do to continue. Um, and there's that, you know, if I pay once, what's saying they're not going to come back and I'm going to have to pay twice, three times, four times down the road. It's a tough one, that, and that gets into a, to a whole other realm of, of your overall communication plans and your plans with your legal counsel and how you're going to address those things. Um, it's, it's, a bigger, it's a bigger conversation, unfortunately or fortunately, than just your CISO and your IT department when it comes to the, do we actually pay? Yeah. Um, but the best thing you can do is, all right, while we're making that decision, can I still operate? And if you can still continue doing what you need to do from an operational point of view, it does give you that time. That brings us to the end of our interview with Chad Peterson. I hope that it gave you an even greater sense of the importance of pen testing your organization to find those vulnerabilities so that you can begin to close them before someone with ill intent finds them for you. And with that, thanks so much for listening. And thank you to my guest, Chad Peterson of NetSpy. I've loaded up the show notes with all the relevant links and references for things that we talked about today and a little bit more that you can dig into just for fun. If you've been enjoying 8th Layer Insights and you want to know how to help, it's actually pretty easy. Just comment and leave a review on any podcast platform that allows you to do so. That lets other people know that this show is worth their time. And their time is super important, so we want to point people in the right direction with these kinds of things. The other really important thing that you can do is to tell somebody else about the show. Podcasts are really difficult to find because there are so many of them and there's not a lot of great advertising out there. So telling somebody, giving that word of mouth recommendation is super important. Please do so for this show. I really appreciate it. Oh, and if you're ever interested in reaching out to me, feel free to do so. You can find my contact information at the very bottom of the show notes for this episode. And while you're at it, feel free to check out my other show, Digital Folklore. It's a fun dive into the quirky and sometimes dark nature of online culture. This episode was written, recorded, sound designed, and edited by me, Perry Carpenter. 
The cover art for Eighth Layer Insights was designed by Chris Machowski at ransomware.net and Mia Rune at miarune.com. The Eighth Layer Insights theme song was written and recorded by Marcus Moscat. Until next time, I'm Harry Carpenter, signing off.